We're continuing a series called You Asked For It, and I just want to express my appreciation to Dan for taking on a tough subject last week. Um, He addressed how we as believers should interact with um, same-sex marriage and the couples that, that engage in a homosexual lifestyle. And I thought he just did a balanced uh, approach and really appreciate what he had to share. And this morning, yes, by all means. This morning is piggybacking on what Dan shared with us last week. And this morning, what we want to consider is how do I respond to sin in the world? You know, as a believer, I have noticed a cultural shift that's gravitating toward a cultural civil war in our country. There are many who are trying to drag our country into a complete change in the way that we view sin and righteousness and what is right and what is wrong. And as believers, we need to have an answer. We need to respond. But by the same token, I've also seen believers come across as very hateful, and at times we scream past one another rather than engaging with other people. And as a result, I think many of the words that need to be shared aren't heard because we aren't communicating in the way that we need to communicate them. So what I want us to look at this morning is balance. How do I, as a Christian, living in this time and in this country, address so many of the differences that exist in our culture? How do I, as a Christian, stand strong in my faith and yet also lovingly seek to transform the lives of people who are bound by sin? That's the question that we want to address today. So how do we respond to sin in our world? Well, first, and this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, we need to defend God's truth. And as believers, the way that starts is by our dependence on the unchanging Word of God. If we are going to speak to what is right and what is wrong and what needs to be considered by our culture, then we have to have a framework from which to work, and that is the Word of God. And the Word of God is to be our compass, our direction in deciding what is right and wrong. You see, sometimes as believers, we conflate what our culture says and what God says, and rather than going to the Word of God, what we do is this. We allow our culture to be a lens through which we view the Scripture rather than making Scripture the lens through which we view society. And as a result, we see some startling statistics. What we find is many believers behave just like the rest of the world around them because they have conflated those two things. It's important for us as believers to cling to the unchanging Word of God. And what we find as a Christian living in this culture is this. There's a tremendous amount of pressure on us to conform to what our world says. We are called haters. 
We are called reactionary. We are called many things when we don't embrace the trends that a society moves toward. When we stand up against the shifts that go against the Word of God, we can expect that. And a certain amount of that is normal, isn't it? Jesus warned us that we would suffer persecution when we spoke righteousness. So we can expect that. But by the same token, we don't want to fall to the other side of this equation where we begin to compromise, where we start to take the timeless truths of God's Word and reshape it and mold it in a way that's more palatable for the rest of society. So we really face a dilemma. We face a very difficult task in front of us. How do we face it? Well, I believe that we must see the unchangeable Word of God as our paradigm for truth. We have to understand that the Word of God is to be our guide, that the trends of our culture will come and they'll go, but what really lasts is the Word of God. And this is something that Peter addressed in his letter to the Ephesians when he said this, All flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. Now, the imagery that's being used here is that of grass in the Middle East, and it would spring up, and a hot wind would come through, and guess what happened to that grass that had shot up and had those tender shoots? When the hot air hit it, it would wither and fall off. That's the way our culture is. We are going to see a constant shift in culture. It's going to continually be in flux and change. So as believers, we can't allow that which is in flux and in change to guide our decision-making. We have to go to something that is eternal, something that lasts, and that's the Word of God. Look at verse 25. But the Word of the Lord remains forever, and this Word is the good news that was preached to you. God's Word remains forever. So, when I am trying to shape a worldview, when I am making decisions about what is right and what is wrong, what I should do, what I shouldn't do, I need to go to the eternal Word of God, not go to the culture around me. I need to see Scripture as my constant, and I need to depend on it and unapologetically share what God's Word says in a culture that is very confused. That's our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ. But then there's something else we need to consider. As we defend God's truth, we, as I've said, determine what's right through revelation and not through current culture. When we look at the culture around us, isn't there a lot of pressure for us to go along to get along? As a matter of fact, when we take a stand and we say, no, this is wrong, we get shouted down. We're told that we just don't get it. We're told that we're trying to hold on to something that isn't worth holding on to. But what we really need to understand is this. God's revelation, the Word of God, is our guide, our direction. We are tempted to set aside the Word of God and follow culture because we have a fallen nature, just like the world around us. So there's a part of us that 
And pride wants people to like us, wants people to accept us. There is a part of us that wants to be embraced by the world around us. We do, in a sense, want to go along to get along. But we also have clarity in Scripture that I need to walk God's path and not the path of this world. This tension was addressed by the Apostle Paul when he wrote to the Galatians. And he said this, But I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, walking by the Spirit means that I depend on the Spirit of God to direct and guide me. And here's the truth that we need to really embrace. God's Spirit directs us through His Word. So, what that means is that is going to dynamically influence the way I live. In other words, I cannot live like the rest of the world around me, forsaking what God's Word says. I have to walk according to the Spirit of God, and that's what this text goes on to say. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. In other words, I'm not to, like in the period of the judges, do whatever's right in my own eyes. I am to do what God calls me to do. So there will be tension between the flesh that wants to draw me into behaving like the rest of the world and the Spirit who wants me to follow the Word of God. And as a Christian, I have to decide which path, which course I will follow. That's part of defending God's Word, living according to it. And what we find throughout Scripture is there is this tension between doing what the world around us tells us to do and doing what God tells us to do. When we read the Old Testament, there is a constant tension between the people of God and the surrounding nations that practiced idolatry. And there was this influence that the surrounding nations had on the nation of Israel. And whenever Israel compromised... Their message was compromised, and they were influenced by the world to a greater degree to the extent that eventually they thought and spoke like the rest of the world. The prophet Isaiah, thousands of years ago, said this to his own people, "'Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter.'" Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Here's the problem. As followers of God, when I look at what God's Word says and I look at my culture and I, in my own wisdom, decide to go with my culture rather than God's Word because it makes more sense in the moment, I am not defending God's Word. And a lost world around us sees us and becomes even more confused because we aren't sharing the message that God would have us share. So that brings us to our next point. What I need to do as a believer is decide biblically when to speak, what to say, and how to say it. Now listen, 
all of us are going to face moment-by-moment decisions, right? Where I have to decide, is this right or wrong? Can I involve myself in this? Do I really need to say something right now? And then, even when I decide, do I really need to say something right now, how do I say it? How do I communicate it in a way that people will be open to it and hear what I'm trying to say? Again, our culture right now makes that very difficult. We are shouting past one another for those who seek to live sinful lives and those who seek to live righteously. There is a shouting match that takes place, and very often in that shouting match, we generate more heat than light. So what we need to do is look to God's Word and see how do I as a believer address this tension. Let me begin by saying this. The Apostle Paul gives us a very clear statement about how we're to approach this in the passage that was read in the Scripture reading this morning out of the book of Colossians. But let me share this with you. In the Colossians passage, the Apostle Paul lived in a culture that was far worse than the culture in which we live. Morally, the Greek and Roman empires were like sin on steroids. They lived unrighteously. And talk about resisting and responding to the message of Christ. Under Nero, many of the Christians who were followers of Christ were put in the arena and shredded by wild animals because they took a stand for Jesus Christ. So when Paul writes this passage, he shares something that I think he has authority to share with us because he faced that tension and he faced that persecution. And this is what he says, conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders. Here outsiders would be those who are outside the faith, making the best use of your time. Now, here's the idea. We have a limited amount of time in which to serve God. So what I have to do is prioritize what I do in serving God. And what should be my priority? Look at verse 6. Let your speech be always gracious, so grace should be a part of my speech. Now, by gracious, I don't think Paul is referring to speaking eloquently. What I believe he is talking about is bringing forth the message of God's grace verbally, but also in the way I conduct myself. Listen, we are speaking to people who are bound by sin. They're entrapped by sin just as we once were. The biggest mistake that we make as Christians is expecting a non-Christian to behave like a Christian. And when I have that expectation, I'm going to be sorely disappointed. As a believer, my responsibility is to communicate the grace of God, and I'm to think about my words, and I'm to think about how I say what I'm about to say. And listen, if I use the tactics of a fallen world to combat a fallen world, then I'm not going to get through to them. My responsibility is to share the truth of God graciously, lovingly, carefully. Notice it says that we are 
to have our speech seasoned with salt. Now, here it's not talking about salty language, but what it's talking about is the idea that I am to let my life enhance, just as salt enhances the flavor of food, I am to let my life enhance my message. I'm to demonstrate the grace of God in my action, in my deportment, in the tone of my voice, in the way that I talk to other people. If I am engaged in a shouting match and somehow I'm able to convince the other person to come to my side and do the things that I think that they ought to do, guess what? That person is still lost. You cannot change a person from the outside in. They must be changed from the inside out. So the message that I share has to be done biblically, not only accurately, and that's usually what we think of when we think of biblically, isn't it? But with the attitude that Christ would have me share it with them. Here's another passage of Scripture that speaks to this issue, and this one by Peter. And it says this, in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. So a lot of us cut it off there at the 15th verse. And we say, yeah, we got to defend the faith. And that means I get down and dirty and I, I fight the people who disagree with me. But look at what it goes on to say. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So, not just what I say, but how I say it. As believers, we have to think in those terms. Something else about how we respond to sin in this world. The dynamic for changing people is the gospel. You can't argue a person into the kingdom. You can't shame a person into the kingdom. You can't get a person to change their behavior and live in a world that would make me feel a whole lot more comfortable if they would just behave themselves. That doesn't bring a person into the kingdom, into a relationship with God. There is one way to change a person who is a sinner, and that is the gospel. And the Word of God makes that abundantly clear. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen, a sinner isn't going to be transformed outside in. They aren't going to be changed by me talking to them and saying, you know, you just really need to live better. They're going to be changed by responding to the gospel and allowing the truth of Jesus Christ to give them a new heart, to make them a new person. And then as they grow in that walk with God, you will see that transformation become even more apparent. People need to be delivered from the power of sin. John wrote this, or excuse me, Paul wrote this, we know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now look at this. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Something we forget as believers is this. 
People who are pushing an agenda that goes against the truth of God are enslaved by sin. They are completely enslaved by sin. So how can I expect them to come out from that slavery to sin and behave in a way that's more palatable and more comfortable for me apart from the transformation of the gospel? That's something that as believers, we need to not be distracted by all of the culture wars around us and focus more on the change that comes through the gospel. Here's something else about the change that comes through the gospel. It's durative. Durative change comes only through the gospel. In other words, if you want lasting change, that's what really transforms people, and that's what transforms a society. We can get so distracted by the moral victories in the moment that we forget the long-term victory that a person experiences from sin by the transformative power of the gospel. The Scripture describes this change so clearly. You see, when I share Jesus Christ with someone and they trust Christ as their Savior, there has been an eternal change in that person. Do you ever think about that when it comes to the gospel? We, when we share the gospel, affect a person's eternity. If I win an argument on a moral issue, I might win and I might be really happy for months, years, whatever the duration of that change might be. But if that person doesn't receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, they're spiritually dead, separated from God. This is why... Jesus said this, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is an eternal change. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In other words, what the Word of God is sharing with us is this, when I share the gospel, a person's eternity is on the line, and they are passing from judgment into life from separation from God into eternal life, from damnation in hell, which again is not palatable to the society around us, but is true, into eternal life. So as believers, we need to be more passionate about the gospel than we are about the social change that we want to see in the moment. The gospel needs to be the focal point of how we engage. One other thought when it comes to this change that comes about by the gospel, this dynamic change, and that is this, discipleship is God's plan to grow people and ultimately to change the world. When we look in the Scripture, we see that an integral part of the gospel is discipleship. Sometimes in our misconception, we think, get a person to make a commitment to Christ, and then good luck, I hope it works out for you. In reality, what the Scripture teaches us is that's only a part of the gospel, this getting a person to make a commitment to Christ. Discipleship is an integral part, and Jesus brings this out in the Great Commission. In the Great Commission, He assumes evangelism, and then He goes on and He says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, evangelism has to take first place first, right, before there is making of disciples. 
But the call to us all is to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then we're to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And then this promise, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Great Commission is not just something that we talk about on Missionary Sundays. The Great Commission should be a focal point of our lives as we share Christ and seek to grow believers. This is God's plan for change. Paul said this to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Do you catch that? This is what God would have us do. We are to begin a process of multiplication by winning people and teaching them to win others. You know, there's an illustration, and I'm so bad with math, I'm going to read it to you, but I think it really communicates the idea of evangelism versus discipleship. If we have evangelism only and then evangelism with discipleship, which model truly works? Listen to this. Suppose you're a really great evangelist and you lead a thousand people to faith in Christ every day. Now, that's awesome, isn't it? At the end of year one, you would have 365,000 new believers. That's the principle of addition, 1,000 people every day. Suppose another person in one year led one person to Christ and spent that year building his faith, teaching God's truth, training that individual to grow to maturity and spiritually reproduce themselves in someone else. At the end of year one, two disciple makers. If you continue to lead the thousand people to Christ every day, at the end of the second year, 730,000 people to follow Jesus. The disciple maker at the end of year two, four disciple makers. If the process continues and you keep leading 1,000 people to Christ every day, adding 365,000 believers for a year, at the end of 10 years, 3,650,000. Wow. And at the end of 25 years, 9,125,000. Huge numbers. But if the disciple maker keeps investing in one person every year who trains and teaches them to invest at the end of 10 years, 1,024, still not all that outstanding. Guess what happens by year 25? 33,554,432. Three times what the evangelist does, winning 365,000 people a year. This is God's plan for transforming and changing the world. And as believers, we need to be careful not to get caught up in the argument and shouting past each other. Yes, we need to speak God's truth, but balance that with priorities. Our focus needs to be evangelism and discipleship. One final thought on this. Don't hate the sinner. Hate the sin. As I'm sharing the gospel... Something I need to remember is this, disdain for people blocks evangelism. I've seen some Christians who warn other people about hell and rather enjoy the idea that that person is going to hell. We may not communicate it in those words, 
But in the way that we attack and verbally lash the sinners who struggle with sin all around us, it comes off that way. When I was in Buffalo, New York, serving as a pastor in an inner city church, there was a brick layer who was doing tuck pointing on our huge brick building. And he came in and he wanted to talk to me, and I said, sure, let's talk. Shared the gospel. I think he had already received Christ, but it was in spite of the message of the Christians who had been witnessing, not through it. You see, their evangelistic model was taking their lighters and turning up the flame as far as it would go and saying, this is where you're going. Does that look great? Now, granted, God used it in spite of their message and their method, but I think this person could have moved along a lot faster had he had a different approach. Additionally, I wonder how many people they had offended away by almost enjoying the idea of people suffering in hell because they're different than them. People will not hear the gospel if they sense that we hate them, that we reject them, and that we stand as enemies. So as believers, do not show disdain toward those who are entrapped by sin. When I look in Scripture, I see the reminder again and again and again to believers. That reminder is this, you were once bound by sin too, but by the grace of God you have been set free. That should always be at the forefront of our minds. People need to hear the gospel, and they won't hear it if they hear rejection from us. Something else. As believers, we can become distracted by winning the argument but losing souls. I stated this earlier, but I think it bears repeating. I can convince somebody to change their behavior, but they will still be lost. It isn't until a person embraces Jesus Christ as their Savior that they are saved. So, if all I do is say to a person, quit this behavior, you're terrible for doing this, stop this, they're not going to hear the gospel. And they won't be transformed. And they won't have that inner life that God gives them, that new man. And they won't have that durative change that brings eternal life. They'll be lost in their sin. So as a believer, I need to be careful that I'm not distracted by the culture wars. Yes, I need to be a reminder about what is right and what is wrong, but I have a higher objective than transforming my society. My objective is to transform individual lives, which will in turn transform society. When we look at the Roman Empire, it was the superpower of the world, right? It was such a huge superpower that nobody could imagine that it would ever fall. And then you have a fledgling church where you have people sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the amazing thing. 
the empire did what it could to crush that fledgling church. What happened? The Roman Empire is not with us today, but the church is. And we are here today because people were committed to sharing the gospel and seeing to change lives. My relatives were in Wales. Before the gospel came to them, they were animists. But when the gospel came, my relatives trusted Christ. My dad did research on our lineage and Early on in the late 1600s, early 1700s, pastors from Wales came to the United States, my ancestors, because they wanted to carry the message of the gospel to the United States, transformed because of the power of the gospel. That's what God would have us do. He wants us to be people who carry the message of transformation. One final thought, and this is it. The destination of the lost should burden us all. Folks, we don't like to talk about this. In some circles, it's considered taboo to mention hell. But there is a lost world out there that is headed for hell. And even though it makes us squeamish or uncomfortable, it is truth. Jesus said to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So what does it mean to perish? Look at the text as it goes on. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him, delivered from condemnation. And folks, what does condemnation mean? It means an eternity separated from God in a place called hell. Verse 18 goes on to say, whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Listen. We have a lost world around us condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. I can change my culture, get them to live in a way that is more comfortable for me, but it's not a lasting change. It's not an eternal change. The change that needs to take place is in the hearts of men and women who come into a personal relationship with the Father through Jesus Christ, who pass from death into life, who are no longer condemned but declared righteous by the Holy God because the stakes for the lost are too high. The book of Revelation shares this. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which was the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and they were judged. 
Here's the truth. Either a person finds Jesus Christ as Savior or they face Jesus Christ as judge. And then the Scripture goes on, each one of them according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is a second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what God's Word tells us the stakes are for the hearts and the lives of people. We can win a cultural war, but lose the souls of people. So don't get conflicted by the war that rages around us. Yes, stand for God's truth. Yes, be a voice for right and wrong and morality, because understand this, as I say what is right and what is wrong on the basis of God's Word, that raises a consciousness in people of sin, and when there is a consciousness of sin raised, then there is an awareness of need. And when there's an awareness of need, somebody may just listen to the gospel. That's what we're to do, because the stakes are high. The lost face a Christless eternity of eternal torment. Not my idea, but the revelation of God's truth. And if we have compassion and love for the world around us in the same way that God does, that should concern us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for all of these texts that were pointing us in the direction of how we should live and how we should approach a world around us that rejects your truth. Let us not become distracted by the things of this world that would draw us away from the message of the gospel. May we be ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and we pray this in his precious name. Amen.